0: Amen. Well, my name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church, and today we're going to be in the book of First Thessalonians. It's our series right now. We're working through that book consistently. I want you to flip or turn or tap your way to First Thessalonians chapter 4. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll have them on the screen for you, but we want to give you one on your way out. Modern English translation. I want you to read what we're reading and see where we get it from. And if you've ever been tempted to open a Bible and read it, it may be to answer the question, what is God's will for my life? I grew up in the church. I grew up around a lot of Christians. As you get into student ministry, high school age, you get into college ministry, the, almost the only question anybody asks is, what is God's will for my life? Now, when you get to maybe where you are, you may have stopped asking that question, We generally now, maybe more, ask the question, what does God want me to do so that I can be done with him and get on with what my will is for my life? But if you say you are a Christian, then you should be asking what God's will is for your life. If you're not somebody who is a Christian, maybe this can be a way to see the attractiveness of Christianity because in God we get... Direction. We have a reason. We have a target. We have a pace that's set. If you ever feel that dissatisfaction with your life, they call it ennui. It's appropriate to use a French word because you can just imagine like cigarettes, wine, and just sadness, right? You have this dissatisfaction with your life. Well, we've got something for you. See, it used to be that you had like a midlife crisis, now it's like a late 20s crisis. I experienced it as I was growing up because I went through college and all my friends, you know, whatever, and then you leave and you go start a job and then you watch as your friends who all started jobs, like, go back. They get really into their hobbies. They get really into travel before 2020. Or they go back to grad school. Why? Because they kept thinking, like, yeah, you know, I'm going to get this job. I'm going to get out there. I'm going to do what they told me is good. I'm going to be productive. And then extremely dissatisfying meaning is hard to come across if you're this very specific tool how are you supposed to be used what is the thing that would make you as happy as a dog doing what it's bred to do you ever see a hunting dog start to hunt it's in their DNA, it's in their genes, and as they start to get into it, as they start to smell that whatever, I mean, with the terriers, maybe it's rats, but other things, it's like uh, rabbits or deer or whatever, when they start to smell it, and it's like, it's, it's what they have been designed to do, and as soon as that happens, it's just all the stars align, ooh, and they cannot be more happy. What is that for us? What are we supposed to be doing See, only something that has a transcendent meaning, like Christianity, can give you real capital M meaning. And if that is something on offer, what is God's will for your life? It's right here. It says it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look with me. Finally then, brothers, we ask and we urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Ready? Your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality. Wow! That's it. That is God's will for your life. Did you see it? It's a word you didn't know and then something about sexual morality. Kind of bums you out, doesn't it? Oh, man. Well, we've got to get into and see from the Bible's perspective whatever it is that he's saying in order for us to, I hope, feel something of the excitement that you should feel that they would have felt as they spoke these words that the Thessalonians may have felt as they read these words. That he's giving you a reason. He's giving you a direction. He's giving you a pace that would increase that you have a target, and you're being shot by the master like an arrow from a bow, whoosh, right at that target, that your life now has meaning in every aspect of it, every minute in it. And you're not just like an arrow, because an arrow comes off the bow and slowly slows down. So all of the, all of the momentum from it is right there at that moment, whoosh, and now air resistance and whatever is slowly slowing it down. You're the opposite of that. You're more like an arrow that increases in speed. You do so more and more that this meaning would somehow tear away things that entangle, that it would tear away distractions and sort of these um, time wasters, not just time wasters like Facebook, but time wasters like that pull your heart in several different directions and purify you, clean you, move you into one solitary, beautiful pursuit. So when he's talking about sanctification, what is he talking about? What does that word even mean? When you go to the context of Jesus' parables and you think about how he's going to be coming soon. Because remember, that's what this whole thing is. This is a, next week is when we really dig into sort of the nitty gritty about Jesus' return. But all of the stuff we're talking about has Jesus' return written on top of it. And when you're thinking about what God is going to find you doing when he returns, this is it. When you're reading through the New Testament, you have Jesus teaching on his return. And he's often talking about it like how you as a parent open the door on your kids. We do that. My kids are like four, six, and eight. And so when I open the door on my kids and they don't know that I'm coming and they see me and I see them, they're just playing dolls. It's not that big of a deal. But when they're teenagers... What are they going to be playing with? When you, as an adult, have someone flip on the lights on the things that you're trying to hide, what will he find you doing? What will he find you pursuing? So, Let's understand the word sanctification. Let's start with understanding what he means by the word, the concept, what's kind of painted in there with all this gospel background, and then we'll dig into how it actually moves forward in your life. First, sanctification, that's a word that's very difficult for us. You only ever see it in the Bible. So let's use a different word that'll kind of key into an illustration. Sanctification is renovation. Renovation. You get that either you are into or your mom is into hgtv shows that have people renovating it's awesome you've seen it i've seen it it's cool it does kind of draw you in if you don't have your mom watching it if you're not watching it you've been to the doctor and it's been on in the waiting room the renovation show is this addictive sort of exciting process where you watch something junky become something spectacular where a living kind of a uh, some kind of I don't know, maybe they bought it from somebody weird or they bought it because it was kind of dilapidated and then they renovate, they turn it into something, something livable, something beautiful. Sanctification is renovation, we'll talk about that, and then we're going to start where they start with demolition and then build up something beautiful. So, sanctification. That word is tied into the concept of holiness, and that's a word that we don't really have much of a a space for mentally either. So I want you to kind of step back into the way that Jewish people would have understood this understanding of holiness, especially if you go back several hundred and even thousand years to when there was the temple. We don't have time to dig into everything that's going on here, But I want you to imagine for a moment that you are the high priest of the nation of Israel and it is your job to go into Solomon's temple on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, to take the blood of the sacrifice all the way into the Holy of Holies. Think about it. Imagine for a moment that that's your job. Imagine you're a 50th Jewish man thousands of years ago. And you've got on the outfit. We don't have time to go through that. You have performed the sacrifice. We don't have time to talk about all that. Wish we did. But just now, think about that moment where it is now your job to walk into the Holy of Holies. The temple was on a mound, so you had to walk up to it. And it was the most beautiful building that anybody's ever seen. And as you're walking up to the temple, you go first into the outer courts. And in this outer court, you've got things that represent earth, land, where you belong. You have the giant altar, but it's made out of uncut stone. So it kind of reminds you, makes you think of, symbolizes the earth. Then you have this gigantic uh, bathtub sort of thing that they use to hold a bunch of water for uh, purification rites. And it was so big, and it was made out of bronze. It was so enormous, they called it the sea. And it was kind of supposed to be the sea. As you're walking through this outer court, you're thinking about the world around you, where you go, which is land and sea. And on the sea and around in the imagery within this outer court, you're seeing animals. There are these big bulls that hold up the sea. You see on the sea decorations of these lions and lilies and oxen supposed to be thinking about the world around you, what we have been created and kind of put in or cast out into. You walk through the outer courts into what's called the holy place. This is a structure within the temple. In the holy place, Israel's allowed to come to the outer courts, but only the priests are allowed to go into the holy place. So you pass into God's presence in the holy place. And in this dark room, you see this lamp with seven pieces to it. So they've got seven different light sources that's supposed to be representative of the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets as they rotate above us, the, the, the setting for the earth. It's as though you have walked up and passed into something on your way to somewhere somewhere. And you look in this holy place and there is this massive curtain that's beautifully embroidered, but it's embroidered with cherubim. Those are angels. And not just like angels with harps and babies and bottoms, but angels that are the hosts of heaven, the armies of heaven. Angels that hold flaming swords. The angel that held the flaming sword that kept Adam and Eve out of Eden after the fall. And it's your job to now walk through that curtain, past those angels, into what is called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. It's as though you have climbed up Jacob's ladder, or the, the ladder that are, all these angels are going up and down at Jesus' birth. It's as though you are doing what the, the people at Babel, way back in the beginning of Genesis, were attempting to do in their sin. You are actually climbing from earth, through the heavens, to heaven, to God's actual presence. As you walk through this curtain into the place where the Ark of the Covenant is, God's footstool on earth, into his actual presence. And as you walk through that curtain and into that presence, you can feel, you can feel the rope around you. You can hear the bells at the bottom of your cloak and this beautiful garment that you have on. Because if you are killed by God's presence like Uzzah was, you can look him up in the Old Testament. I didn't mean for it to rhyme. His name is not supposed to be silly. Uh, Uzzah was a guy in the Old Testament who touched the Ark of the Covenant he wasn't supposed to and God struck him dead in that moment. You're walking through this curtain into the presence of God, which raised a, a gigantic fire and smoke on the Mount of Sinai as Moses himself was the only one who could stand there. It's the presence of God like Isaiah would see later on when in Isaiah 6, he's in God's presence and he says, woe is me, I'm undone. He knows that he is literally going to be unmade in the presence of God because of his sin. And you as this priest are now standing before that presence and you praise God for the incense, the smoke in the room so that you can't even see the Ark of the Covenant because you're so nervous that his holiness is just going to smite you, burn you up. Israel was built around this place, around this series of symbols in order for them to see that God's holiness is and our sinfulness is. And if God is going to be with us again, we've got to somehow resolve our sinfulness or his holiness will burn us up the same way that light burns up darkness. To my knowledge, it's not even um, energy or activity for light to just cast darkness away. You turn on any light and all darkness, just whoo. If he is to be with us and we are darkness and he is light, then something's got to happen. Now, fast forward to the New Testament. Instead of this temple with this holy of holies place, we have in Jesus the idea that God has stepped out from behind the curtain that he's invaded, that he's walked out in among us. And the only way that he can, that he has actually taken on himself flesh, that he has incarnated, that he's become one of us. The perfect one, the holy one, the one that is so dangerous is now walking out among us. And because of what he's gone through and because of why he's done what he's done, he is. He's able to be around us without just burning us up like chaff. Then we start to realize, how is it possible that this Holy One is around us and we don't get burned up? Okay, well, if we don't get burned up, how is it possible that He's around us and He doesn't get dirty? Our sin on Him. And yet He lives perfectly. The tempter comes at Him trying to destroy this fragile flesh. And it doesn't work until He allows it at His death. Very importantly, is told us in Matthew that when Jesus dies, when He gives up His spirit... That curtain, that beautiful curtain with the cherubim inlaid, the place that separated the holy place from the most holy place, that curtain tears in two. We're told by Jesus' followers that after he not only died and then rose from the grave, he told them to wait and that fire and wind would come down on them, that the, the presence of God, the Spirit of God would come down on them. That's what we see in Pentecost, as flames, tongues of fire, rest on their head, and the sound like mighty rushing wind blows through the room. What happened? What was once a holiness that only one person, one time a year, could come before with all the the sacrifices and pageantry and, and special cleansing rites that would take place, that holiness has now broken out among us. It came in the person of Christ. It invaded our darkness and became darkness itself. Then, dying, made a way for that holiness to not only be in heaven, but on earth. And not only on earth in this protected way so that it doesn't break out and break everything, but the holiness of God, the presence of God, now dwells in certain men and women, the followers of Jesus. That holiness is now in you. sanctification what does the word sanctification mean sanctification is renovation it is that holiness making its home in you now changing you to put it in a whole different light think of the criminal the criminal that you hate the thing the one who has done things deserving not only death but the worst death we can give the one that needs to be burned, but he's got to be burned in a fire that's hotter than we can make fire hot. And as he goes to be burned, you see Jesus step up, offer to take his place. The thief, the criminal, in heart melting love, responds, allows. Jesus stands forward, and he's burned in the man's place. Now the criminal goes free. If you're the criminal, that is beautiful. That's beautiful beyond all reason. But if you're the victim of the criminal, if you can see that criminal's sin and you can hate that criminal's darkness, oh, you cringe that the criminal goes free. Free? Well, no, not really. He's going to be reformed. He has a new name on him. He's not just free. He's actually been adopted, and he is going to become a son. There's no question about reforming. Do you understand that that is really how the Bible sees this word, sanctification, the holiness pursuit of the Christian? It's renovation. He's coming to live in you. Famously, C.S. Lewis, in a book called Mere Christianity, took an illustration from a guy named George MacDonald, And said, imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes to rebuild that house. At first, you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof. And you knew those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, very British, presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. And does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. Christian holiness, we never seem to understand it. We always confuse grace and works. Why? It's because we don't want to understand it. Some of you hate work. You don't want to be changed and you don't want to do the work that it will take to be changed. And some of you hate grace. You can't give up the pride that says, look what I did. I'm still my own. So we don't want to understand it. We don't try to understand it. And instead, we kind of put the whole project off to the side and go running after either our sin or our pride. But God doesn't allow that. He says he will sanctify us. It is his will that we be sanctified because... He is going to renovate us in order to live in us. That's the idea of salvation. He's changing your brain and he's changing your heart. Why does it matter if I'm already forgiven? Why why does it matter if he's going to make me all the way into the image of Christ one day when I die? Well, this pursuit of doing things right is just like our prayer. Why do we pray if God already knows everything? It said in Matthew 6, right before he tells us the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says... When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like Gentiles. They think they're going to be heard for their many words. Don't be like them. Your Lord, your Father, He knows what you need before you even ask Him. Oh, Okay, cool. So why am I praying? What's the point in asking you something if you already know I'm going to ask it and already know what you're going to say? Just answer. Well, no. We pray because going through this action teaches our brain truth. Going through this action repeatedly teaches our heart affection. If you then pray, as the Lord taught us, Our Father who is in heaven, then you will begin to understand and be changed by the corporate adoption that makes us be able to say, Our Father. You'll have your eyes taken up to the beauty of this place called heaven. Where is God's presence? In heaven and in you. It's the same reason that I make my children repent to each other, and then hug. She pulled my hair. I hate her. I hate you too. Oh, no, 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 no. Forgiveness. You say you forgive her, and I don't actually check to see if there's forgiveness. I just say, say you forgive her, <laughs> because they just do it. And okay, say you forgive. all right. Now hug, and then they hug. Why? Going through the motions is teaching them the truth. It's teaching them about what's really happening. So we go through these motions. We we learn these things. We attempt these things. We do and we watch as our brains and our hearts change, react, conform to these new ways. Go back to the text. is what he says. For the instructions we gave you in the Lord, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then... He doesn't just say renovation. He says renovation in these ways that you abstain from sexual immorality. Each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you before and solemnly warned you, God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. This Renovation takes place first with a demolition. He just says, this sexual morality has got to go. It's got to go. So you're wondering what sanctification looks like or where you're supposed to start? Start there. I'm talking about lust, pornography, adultery. Wherever it is in your life, find it and kill it. Bring it to the light. Why? Well, he says that he's given you control there. You, you're able to gain control. It's the enemy that makes you think that it's impossible for you to win. And then he reminds you with just a little bit of fear that the Lord is an avenger in these things. That these people you take advantage of in your eyes, with your, with your mind and your heart, or with your body, will be avenged. We don't have time, but Jesus came the first time, meek and mild. He comes the next time on a horse with a robe dipped in blood and a sword from his mouth. You want to know about him coming back? Get your sexual purity right. Let us help you do that. It's a community project. But that sanctification, that's God's will for you. Where do you start? He says... Sexual immorality. So, start with sexual immorality. Start with the destruction part, the demolition part of this renovation. Knock that out of your life. Then, start to build something beautiful. It's not all negative, it's positive. He says in verse 9, Now, concerning brotherly love, you don't have any need for anyone to write to you because you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. That's indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout the whole region. Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more to aspire to live quietly to mind your own affairs and work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one what is the positive thing that you go do brotherly love instead of abusing each other through sexual immorality instead we're going to show one another love And it's not just serve one another. It's actually looking each other in the eyes and experiencing through relationship value in that other person. What's the most interesting thing in the universe? God. What's the most close thing? What's the most close reflection of God in the world? People. Especially people that have been changed by Jesus. Feel that. Enjoy that. Go find each other and show each other love and do so more and more. As... You learn to work hard. Work hard in a way that gives you independence. Work hard in a way that gets you out of debt. Work hard in a way that allows you to live quietly as you pursue these kingdom purposes and your sanctification, which is God's will for your life. Believer, are you doing that? You have to understand that his holiness has come to live in you. Renovation must take place. And if you become discouraged because it's going so slow, hear this from this guy, Martin Luther. He was an ancient reformer. He was a big deal for us in the Protestant version of Christianity. But he says, This life, it's not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. It's not health, but it's healing. It's not being, but it's becoming. It's not rest. Uh oh. But exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we're growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it's going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. Confident of your salvation, are you marching forward towards sanctification? Brothers and sisters, jump in to this process and watch as God has you accelerate more and more toward that target that He is shooting you at. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, please incentivize us for purity. It doesn't feel like a popular message, Lord. You preach these things because it's what's in Scripture, not because it's what people want to hear. And yet, Lord, if we will go after it, if we will pursue it, we'll find in our life not only um, a level of purity, we'll find a level of meaning, a level of love, and a level of joy that will excite a level of activity that increases more and more. Even as our bodies run down, our insides are going to be renewed day by day. Father, please open our eyes to heaven itself, to the incredible gift you've given us in giving us yourself. that we would be changed, this world would be changed for your glory. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.